Thanks for listening to Pod of Jake. I'm Jake. You can reach me anytime by emailing jake at blogofjake.com. I'm fortunate to have some sponsors supporting the show whose products I genuinely love and recommend. I'll start with a word on those so the rest of the episode will have no interruptions. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Levels. Levels uses continuous glucose monitoring to track your blood sugar in real time. It allows me to see the impact that everything I do has on my metabolic health so that I can optimize my diet and exercise accordingly. Wearing the Levels patch, I feel like I'm living in the future. There's this moment when you raise your phone to the back of your arm, it vibrates and shows your glucose level right on the screen. It's this instantaneous look inside yourself, an in-the-moment snapshot of what's going on inside your body. And while it's only showing one simple measurement for now, it's enough for me to see the future. And that's exciting. It's exciting because I believe that we can live meaningfully longer and healthier lives than we do today. And I believe technologies like Levels will help us to get there. Levels is currently running an exclusive beta program with a wait list of over 100,000 people. But you can skip the line and join Levels today by using my link in the show notes. Levels.link slash Jake. Again, that's levels.link slash Jake. This episode is brought to you by Aura. That's O-U-R-A. The Aura ring, from my perspective, is the single best wearable on the market. I use it to measure my sleep, activity, and readiness on a daily basis. I bought my Aura ring several months ago before talking with the company's CEO on the podcast. I haven't taken it off since. I believe what gets measured gets managed. So if you care at all about your health, which you should, you have to measure your sleep in order to manage it. Aura measures much more than just my time in bed. It tracks my REM sleep versus deep sleep, my resting heart rate and heart rate variability, my temperature, my activity, and much, much more. For $299, you can get your own Aura Ring on AuraRing.com. That's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G.com. AuraRing.com. Okay, let's get into it. Thank you, Eric, for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, you are the founder and CEO of Elysium Health, a really innovative health company that uh, I've been tracking for a while and, and think is super exciting, all these things that you're working on. Um, but you've got a, a long story before that of a lot of successful um, stints along the way, investing and now entrepreneurship. Um, it would be great if you could sort of start off the show for those who aren't familiar with you or with Elysium by just walking us through that story uh, really as early as you're willing to start to uh, where you are today and what you're doing today. Uh, thank you, Jake, and, and thank you for having me. And, and I'm happy to do that. I think um, I could go back, uh, I would say probably to, to my college graduation, because I, I don't know how much it'll resonate with people, but it's, it's a winding road filled with a lot, I think, of, of serendipity for me uh, in terms of how I ended up here. And I don't think that's a per, you know, particularly unique uh, in terms of entrepreneurial experience, but um, in any event, uh, I think what's what's partly interesting for me is I um, I was an athlete in college. I was a wrestler, and sort of from the the very beginning, the 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 path to uh, at that time. So we're we're in the mid aughts, if you will. I, I graduated undergrad in two thousand and seven, and sort of as you enter college uh, in this particular setting there was really only one track and that was investment banking. And so I, like many others, uh, also as an econ major said, well, I guess I'm going to be an investment banker uh, and, and kind of just steeled myself for that in the early years of college and um, through uh, internships and other things over the, the summers uh, throughout college, I realized that that was absolutely not the life for me. And, you know, funny as these things go, I said to myself, well, that must mean that I have to be a, a management consultant uh, if I'm not going to be an investment banker, right? That's the only alternative, uh, at least at this point, that's what I believed. And uh, I remember my senior fall, I interviewed at all of the, the major consulting shops, a handful of uh, you know, the, the smaller boutique ones and, and even some of the larger corporate ones that I really had no intention of, of ever working for. And it didn't really matter whether I did or not um, because I didn't get any offers from that. And so I entered into the second semester of my senior year with no job prospects. And, you know, all of my, my peers sort of already, you know, accepted positions and knowing where they're moving. And here I am in, in February with, with no um, opportunities. And I, 
I get a ping from our career services uh, from a venture capital fund, uh, which at that point I'd never heard of uh, either the fund or venture capital itself. And it was uh, Bain Capital Ventures. And uh, the, the note said that they were looking for analysts uh, and this is their first class of it. And, and basically what it turned out is, um, you know, they, they wanted to be more proactive. I think now it's very, very common, but this is, you know, going back almost 15 years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of these, especially when you're looking at private equity funds in this particular case, um, becoming earlier stage in their focus, what you see is um, much more relationship driven or even process driven banker led, et cetera. And so, you know, now it's kind of weird to even think that there wasn't a lot of proactivity in networking, but in this particular case, there wasn't. And so uh, very interesting and appealing opportunity for me to um, try and identify uh, young, fast-growing technology companies and getting the opportunity to reach out to them and effectively convince them to take our money while simultaneously learning about what they were doing. Uh, And um, I I would never have stumbled into that had I actually... um, (laughs) taken you know, one of these prior positions. And so I ended up in, at Bain and just had a wonderful experience there. And one of the things that I learned was I felt like I was sitting on the wrong side of the table. I was constantly uh, talking to entrepreneurs who sounded like they were just so incredibly dedicated to what they were doing. And, and more than that, just inspired every day to, to wake up and, and put their feet on the floor and, and go do something. And while I loved my job, I just, I didn't have that level of enthusiasm and passion. And so I said, you know, I'd like to make a change and I didn't really know how to do that. So I thought maybe business school was, was the way. Um, I went to business school and fully intended on uh, pursuing this idea of entrepreneurship, but did what I always now caution people not to do against even then my better judgment, which was I tried to start a bunch of companies just for the sake of being an entrepreneur and just for the sake of starting them. And those all failed or, or petered out. I mean, there was a point where I had one idea that I liked that I couldn't even recall if I were to try, but I, I remember vividly that it required about a $20,000 investment. And I wasn't willing to do that out of my own pocket. I wasn't willing to approach friends and family. And I, I knew if, if that was the case, that this was not something that I was going to dedicate myself to for, for 10 years. And, um, you know, with that in mind, I got a, I got an inbound from Sequoia Capital and um, uh, had some conversations with them about um, leading mobile investing for their, their growth fund. And you have to remember, this is now 2011 or so. So the iPhone was only four years old. Uh, and while I'd come into business school thinking, hey, um, you know, you're going to be an entrepreneur, all of a sudden I had this opportunity to, to travel to the West Coast, immerse myself in Silicon Valley and, and do something that I hadn't up until that point in my life been able to do or had the opportunity to do. And so I thought, and, and also, you know, uh, Bain is an incredibly... Um, amazing fund, top tier fund. And I think having the opportunity also to, to then um, work at Sequoia for me was, was very, very interesting. And so I thought maybe it was just the space I was focused on, maybe infrastructure software investing at uh, Bain Capital was different to me somehow and that you know, mobile in California would be different. And so I, I took the position uh, with, with great enthusiasm. And then as these things are apt to happen, uh, about two months before I graduated, I did a, uh, a case study in one of my classes on entrepreneurship, and it was on a company called Sertris Pharmaceuticals. So, Jake, I don't know if you've ever heard of Sertris. Uh, only from listening to your podcast in preparation for this. Right. So um, it, it's interesting because there's a, a small number of people who know it very, very well, and hand, most people don't, but it is also a very um, sort of divisive company and outcome in terms of the, the broader longevity and aging, both field and then I would say uh, uh, market when you go to the sort of commercial side of things. And so anyway, um, I'd never heard of them. They were a Boston-based um, company and pretty high profile, uh, um, which we learned through the case. But um, here I was having never heard of them either. And so uh, a couple of things just about the case. Um, the, the whole premise of this case is you are the protagonist as you are in business school in every particular case. And you have to make a decision as you do in, again, every case. And for Sertris, the, um, the, the, the problem, the tension here is they're a pharmaceutical company and they have a molecule that they think is um, stopping, slowing, or reversing a fundamental process of aging. And because aging is not a disease, and because the, the molecule that they discovered was natural in its origins, 
there was an opportunity uh, from a business model standpoint to go direct to consumers, right? To create a consumer facing healthcare company. Um, however, because there weren't very many models or at least good and reliable models for studying aging itself, the early research that was done in, for instance, mouse models was done on disease um, models, right? So you're looking at things like cancer, cardiovascular disease, and, and the data was very promising. And, and that fits, right? That maps. The idea is that aging is this interconnected series of degradations and that solving for aging and these processes of aging are going to have a multitude of potential impacts as opposed to just going after, for instance, a singular form of cancer. And so uh, because of that, the other opportunity would be to enter into a more traditional drug development path where you're looking to modify the molecule, one, so it's potentially more effective, but really so you can get a patent on the molecule because uh, that's where the, the economic return resides. And that's your, that's your other path. And they're, they're very different business models. And then there's a third, which is, you know, do they want to license their intellectual property away to a much larger pharma company? And you spend the better part of, of 90 minutes sort of debating this, right? And, and just to give you a, a sense for the case and, and where, um, where I was in all of this, uh, just to back up, the, the mm -hmm. molecule and what they discovered, it was a, um, a lab at MIT run by Leonard Garente and his uh, postdoc, David Sinclair, who, who is now at Harvard. Um, they discovered a class of uh, genes called uh, sirtuins. And these uh, sirtuins are now affectionately referred to as longevity genes because what they found was, well, they found a series of things. The first was that these genes were found in, in all living organisms, so conserved across species. So, you know, that's always interesting, right? Discovering a new gene. But what they found from an activity standpoint was really interesting. They found that they acted as the guardians, if you will, of the genome. So they actually both from an information standpoint protect DNA, they, they are responsible for DNA repair, but also DNA protection in terms of preventing DNA damage, but also they confer structural benefits too. So if you think about, you know, your DNA as this warehouse or a library, they're not just the sort of um, librarians who are, who are kind of the filing system and making sure the books are on the shelves and in good condition in the right places. They're actually, the, in many cases, helping the building itself or the security guards that are locking the doors and whatnot. And so um, that's a pretty critical role and, and something that was new. And then the most important thing that they found was that in all of these living things that, that actually age, right? Because there are certain organisms, for instance, jellyfish that don't age or have the ability to, to sort of go back to an embryonic state, that the activity level of these genes de degrades over time. And uh, so that was, a, that was a huge deal. Um, they took that a step further and they showed that if you're able to activate these sirtuins, these genes later in life, um, when the activity begins to degrade, that it confers all sorts of benefits, right? So um, you see these mice living to the human equivalent of 120 years old, and they're healthy to you know, 119 and 11 months. Uh, you put a funnel down their throat and feed them nothing but, but fat, and they don't gain weight. Um, if they have cancer, the cancer goes away. Uh, then they took that a step further, and they genetically modified mice to actually never lose that sirtuin activity. Uh, and that showed exactly the same benefit. And so on the back of this discovery, it was a, it was a huge deal at the time. Um, uh, the postdoc, David, gets the offer to run sort of the aging um, uh, research effort at Harvard, which he accepts. And being younger and entrepreneurial, he screens for molecules that will activate um, these sirtuins, right? The idea that, hey, could we find a natural small molecule activator of these uh, because we can't genetically modify humans, or at least at the time we couldn't. Right, with CRISPR and everything else that's now entered into the conversation. But um, by and large, you still probably want to find some sort of uh, oral intervention, right, if it's, if it's safe and effective. Mm -hmm. And so they do, they find this molecule called resveratrol. Jake, you may have heard of that. A lot of people have. And this is a derivative of red wine. And um, it's shown efficacy in activating these uh, longevity genes, these sirtuins in, in mouse models. And for a while, there was this great excitement uh, you can actually go go back and, and look. There's this massive spike globally in red wine sales. I think it's in 07, 08, or 09, something of that sort. And there's you know all kinds of uh, periodicals and publications with you know the red wine molecule, the you know the the fountain of youth molecule. And people thought this was the answer to the French paradox, which is something I wasn't familiar with. But um, you know the, <laughs> there exists this paradox, which is the French eat nothing but high saturated fat diets. Right? Think croissants and cheese. Uh, and they smoke like chimneys, yet they have among the lowest incidence of cardiovascular disease 
in the European Union. And obviously that's the number one killer, right, in, in developed worlds. So um, you're faced with this, this tension, right? Uh, this natural molecule and a, and a potential path to market that's faster, but um, it's characterized by charlatanism and savvy marketing, right? The consumer space than it is R&D and rigor and, and scientific uh, pursuit. And on the other side, you're facing a very, very low likelihood of success, right? It's you know, a minuscule, less than you know, tenths of a percent chance, right? That you go from a mouse discovery to 10 years later an approved therapeutic. And you debate the merits of these, right? Again, for, as I said, 90 minutes or so. And I was firmly in the first camp, uh, Jake. I, I said, I can't understand how anybody could read the same case that I read and not immediately want to take this product for themselves and, and give that to their, their family and their friends as well. And I was only one of two people who felt that, um, mainly because people were really attached to this idea that the, the consumer health world, again, was was not a good place to be. I think the only other markets that might have been considered worse at the time were something like used car sales and you know, people who call you repeatedly for gym memberships, right? <laughs> and so um, it was interesting because at the end of the case, right, the, the sort of aha moment or gotcha moment in this particular instance was um, they never had to make a decision. They uh, were acquired by GlaxoSmithKline for, I think it was $720 million or something thereof in cash. And, um, you know, we know what GlaxoSmithKline does, they, they make drugs. And so um, that really added for me um, something special, right? I, I took a step back leaving that class and I was absolutely floored. I said, I didn't know that aging was a scientific pursuit, let alone a legitimate one. Um, two, I didn't know how much progress we had made, right? It was previously to me this, you know, this amorphous, unstoppable force, and yet now we're we're able to not only identify the processes that drive it, but um, potentially intervene and now even measure it and quantify it, which is, which is incredible. Um, and the fact that the scientists were you know, at MIT and Harvard, the fact that you know, Glaxo was buying this for the price that they did in all cash after just what was a handful of mouse studies. Um, and it ended up failing. It ended up ultimately being internalized at Glaxo. And I, again, I don't have any uh, insider information here in terms of it, but what I've heard is that they've made it into the clinic many years later with um, skin condition uh, related uh, assets. And I think while those are very important and large potential market opportunities, I don't necessarily think that uh, it was what you know the original promise held. But I was really fascinated by this. I, I moved to California a couple months later. I, I was um, working at Sequoia. I was, I was investing there. And I started cold calling the scientists that were involved in the Sertris case and just immersing myself in this world and traveling to, to Stanford and Berkeley and UCSF where they have a very open sort of environment and community where people can come and sit and listen to researchers in the field of aging, give talks on the state of the union. And it was everything from students to Nobel Prize winners. And it was very obvious to me at that point, Jake, that we were at this, this critical juncture in um, a slew of areas that I think added up to an opportunity that to me was, was something I had to pursue. And the first was, you know, not just what I said about aging and, and all the things that I learned about it personally, but that, you know, we were making a lot of progress. We we're on the cusp of, in my opinion, and I certainly think this is borne out uh, even faster in many ways than I probably anticipated, but uh, we're on the verge of a series of discoveries that were just fundamentally going to reshape our thinking, not just about aging, but about human health and, and human longevity. And then two, you know, revisiting this idea of choosing one of these business models, right? I thought, you know, for whatever reason, 15 years ago or so, people didn't want to pursue these idea of platform companies, right? You couldn't possibly build a direct-to-consumer company that also did studies and diseases and then also did other things as well. And to me, I thought that was a huge opportunity because when you're addressing a fundamental process of aging, you're not limited again to one specific area of health or one specific you know, health state, right? So you can make a drug or you can make a medical food or a dietary supplement or a diagnostic. And those things could go after, right? Neurodegenerative diseases, human health and performance, right? On the non-disease side or a million other things. And so um, long-winded way of getting here, but I think you know, all of that added up to, I, I was really sucked into this and, and going back to the founder, um, of search for David Sinclair, you know, his mentor, the, the lab where these discoveries were made, Lenny Garente at MIT, one of the scientists I called just wholeheartedly agreed with me um, in these ideas. And so we, you know, we came together around this idea and, and Lenny became my co-founder and our chief scientist. 
Wow, that's that's an awesome story and uh, certainly a lot of serendipity woven throughout. Um, you know, I don't think there's very very many people who uh, remember so vividly a, a case study from business school, but uh, you saw obviously a seed of something in there and, you know, spent your, your time at Sequoia, which uh, I, it's hard to feel too bad for you about that. But, uh, you know, after a couple of years there, you decided to finally jump out and, uh, and do the thing that it sounds like you went to business school in the first place really to do, which was to uh, find a way to be an entrepreneur. Um, you, you had mentioned like, you know, you felt like you were on the wrong side of the table, really, uh, really liked the way that these entrepreneurs just how passionate they seemed about what they were doing, but you were sort of forcing it at first. You, you were like, all right, I want to be an entrepreneur. So you want to be an entrepreneur for the sake of being an entrepreneur. Uh, and, and these couple of companies flamed out or, or, you know, never got started in the first place. Um, how did you know, you know, you're, you're on a great track, like at that point, right? A couple of years into Sequoia, uh, post business school at Harvard, you know, Princeton, Bain, like you're on this track. And I know from spending some time in banking myself, like you're surrounded by a bunch of other people who are sort of like operating on, on sort of like a track mindset and you're either like ahead or behind, like your brand is good or better or, or it's worse. Um, what gave you the conviction finally to know, okay, with Elysium and your first product basis, um, this isn't me starting a company for the sake of starting a company. This is me really, you know, there's a high opportunity cost on, on quitting the position that you were in at the time. Uh, if things don't work out, what gave you the conviction that this was finally the right idea to go and uh, become a founder? Yeah, you know, I think it's a couple of things, Jake. It's, it, and I, I always go back to, you know, there's some famous um, court case and I can't remember what it is. I should probably learn it because this has come up so much, but I remember at the heart of this case, it might've been like the sixties, but it was going back a while. And it was, it was centered around pornography and part of, of the ruling had to deal with, you know, how do you define it? And I remember the justice, I think it was a Supreme court case and the justice's response is, you know, I know it when I see it. And so, you know, that is something I always tell people without maybe the, the intro part there all of the time. But, you know, for me, it was, it was, after all of that, after all of the knowing maybe I wanted to do this, but not having conviction around an idea, there's a moment where it clicks and you sort of just know it. Um, and, you know, that's happened over and over again. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs would, would say that, that, you know, there are times when you'll go through decision-making processes or really tough times and you just don't know. And then something, something happens and it clicks and you just have the confidence. And then I think it becomes more about pattern recognition and, and knowing that. But to actually put concrete examples against that, I think... You know, there were really two things. The first was I can, again, vividly remember driving to work um, on Monday mornings and um, there was, a, there was a, a guilt element to it. And for me, it was driving to work and saying, I don't enjoy this the way that I feel like I should. I'm a big proponent, Jake, of, of doing something that you actually enjoy, right? I, mm -hmm. I, think, I, I think it's definitely a... Um, a characteristic more so of, of our generation and younger generations as well, and breaking from what I think previously was a different ethos and mindset. But, um, you know, for me, I think it's difficult out of college, certainly, right? You have to pay your dues and, you know, all of those sorts of things. And I do believe in that as well. But there, there does come a time when you get to make your own decisions. And I think, look, that's changed as well, right? I think we've empowered younger people, which is fantastic. But for me, it was you know, late 20s, driving in my car with this, this, as you said, I was a very fortunate uh, person in terms of the path that I was on. And, and I, and I did love what I was doing. But at the same time, I just also wasn't incredibly happy, not as not as fulfilled, I would say I was missing that element of it. And I again, I would remember driving to work on Monday mornings, and just not feeling that way. And then the, the second thing is, Every waking moment that I had free, I was going and immersing myself, as I said, in this, this brand new space that, you know, to me, I would have never thought that being in an FDA regulated environment was something, you know, given how I grew up, given the things that I had optimized for in terms of academics and everything else, uh, early career work, you know, going through a, an approval process, you know, tackling diseases, you know, that's a really, really high bar. Um, and, and steep learning curve, right? And so it's, it's very, very daunting in terms of taking it on. And so, um, 
you know, for me, it was much more about not thinking about that and just enjoying the subject matter. And, you know, I start, you, I did, and maybe others do too, but you start to see opportunity everywhere. And so those are, are almost two ends of a seesaw, I feel like, because they're, they're sort of battling each other. And, you know, you get to a point where I said it, it then turned into guilt where I felt, geez, there's a million people who would line up maybe more out the door to have the opportunity that I do. And yet I feel like I'm being called to do something else. And so for me, that's where it culminated was it just got to the point where, you know, you start flirting with the idea, I think, and then you, you pursue it. And I did a lot of stress testing. Um, you know, part of that was, if you look, we've, we've assembled an advisory board. It's, it's fairly unique in terms of what we've done. Um, but we have about three dozen, uh, probably more if you count our, our sort of collaborators as well, we have about three dozen uh, leading scientists on our advisory board. And, and the reason for that isn't because we love unwieldy meetings. Um, I call it the Brady Bunch meetings when you know we're on Zoom now and you see all the faces. Um, but the reason for that is aging is a multidisciplinary um, problem. It's, you know, it's, it's multifactorial. And so um, you know, for us to really solve it, we don't just need one type of person. We need a lot. So people who explicitly study aging, people who study neuroscience or cancers, or immunology, people who are data scientists or bioinformatics, uh, biostatisticians, et cetera. And um, as part of that, I said, one of the easiest litmus tests here of whether this idea holds water is uh, maybe I can reach out to some Nobel Prize winners, right? I'd been seeing them speak at these events and there had been a Nobel Prize awarded in the field of aging um, for the discovery of telomeres and their role in the aging process. And so um, there were definitely people out there who could offer perspective and I found uh, this was, I think, the moment where I really realized something was there. And when you ask about conviction, this was, this was certainly the moment, if not one of the key moments. It was, I expected to, to be told to go play in traffic uh, by these individuals. And one, I found them to be very welcoming. Um, and two, not only were they willing to take my call, but they were interested um, and they were enthusiastic. And, and many of them said they would be a part of it when I asked them. And so, you know, I went from just asking, is this a an idea that's worth pursuing to suddenly surrounded by, you know, now I think it, at this point, eight or so Nobel Prize winners as part of the advisory group that, that helps us think through product development and clinical trials. And I think at that point, when you have that level of, of kind of enthusiasm for an idea that's taking shape and that's new, especially one that you're passionate about, I, you know, at that point, it's a no brainer. I think, <laughs> you know, not pursuing it is the worst idea. Yeah, no, it sounds like it was a, uh, a number of factors that just compiled and compiled and compiled and, and built up over the course of your time at Sequoia, where, um, you know, at a certain point, you, you got to take the leap so that uh, you can have the Monday car ride to do something that you feel like, you know, un understanding that things at Sequoia were, were, you know, good by a lot of people's perspectives, it's, it's all relative. And if you're not doing the thing that you feel you, uh, you need to be doing, then, you know, totally understandable to sort of let that build up and, and want to go do that thing. Um, your first product was Basis, and, and I assume this was sort of the, uh, the idea around which the company originally was built. Can you talk about how Basis works and, and what it is? I know it's about NAD plus and, and Sirtwins, but for the, uh, for the novice listener who's not super familiar with the science, what's the, uh, the sort of fundamental explanation about what these things are and, and why they matter and how it all works? Well, it's, it's, it's good. I, I gave a brief overview. I use brief and air quotes. You can't see me right now, but um, of, of Sertris because a lot of it was work that was carried over. And, um, you know, while David was working on Sertris and, and, you know, pioneering the use of uh, potential small molecule activators of these longevity genes, right, these sirtuins, um, Lenny and many of, of his and David's peers were sort of really nose to the grindstone on the, the lab side of the equation, really studying this further. And what they actually found was that uh, the sirtuins were degrading in their activity over time um, because they were dependent upon a fuel, a fuel called NAD. So you just mentioned that. Um, and NAD is this critical coenzyme in short um, for the audience. Without NAD, you'd be dead in 20 or 30 seconds. It's a, a fundamental uh, coenzyme that's involved in processes as important as ATP production, right? We remember high school biology and energy creation, mitochondria, powerhouses of the cell, et cetera, um, 101. So um, NAD is, is this sort of currency, if you will, of the cell. It's used for almost everything and sirtuins are no exception. And so um, part of the idea here is, well, if you can restore levels of NAD 
right, as they're declining due to age and create this NAD-rich environment, then you're going to see a lot of these things that depend on it, right, continue to perform as they should. And then uh, Lenny's view was, you know, they've already demonstrated in animal models, multiple animal models, right, that um, activation of sirtuins when they're not degraded, right, has all of these additional benefits. And so um, really it was, it was Lenny's hypothesis right from the outset of our conversations that if you could do both of those things in a single approach, if you could replete, restore boost levels of NAD and then activate sirtuins, um, you're going to have an incredible product on your hands. So that was the hypothesis behind basis. And you know, the very first clinical trial that we did was to show that we could take people who were older in life, so 60, 70, 80 years old, and we, we administered the, the, uh, the product basis to them for two months. And what we, what we observed was, and again, this was placebo controlled, we looked at a 40% increase after 30 days that was sustained after the next 30 days after two months. And so um, while we don't have a, a tremendously detailed scientific understanding of how much NED declines in humans uh, due to aging, the sense is it's by about 50%. So, you know, being able to, to replete to 40% in that period of time means you're, you're right there um, in terms of, of where you want to be. And uh, we've subsequently shown that uh, we activate sirtuins as well. And, and not only that, but that there's a synergistic effect as, as Lenny had initially hypothesized between the two. So a number of different studies we've done have looked at the individual ingredients and then the combination. And you see a, a, um, uh, either a result that in, is, exceeds right, the first two individually, or you observe a result where there is no result for the individual components, but there is for the, the combination. And so we've taken basis now into a series of other um, clinical environments. So um, in terms of uh, um, sort of the health side of the equation, the non-disease uh, or non-prescription side of the equation, uh, we have uh, just completed a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease study. So this is a really interesting space, Jake. One, because it says disease in the name, but it's not a disease. It's actually a precondition to uh, a liver disease called NASH. Hmm. And what's really interesting is NASH is one of these, you know, sort of on the rise, uh, dietary induced, it's basically the fibrosis of the liver. And it has zero treatments. If you look across basically every major pharma portfolio uh, in the startup landscape, there are a ton of efforts looking to solve NASH. But just like in kidney disease, once the tissue is fibrotic, it's very difficult to reverse it. And so, you know, you'd rather treat it in the, in the precondition. And um, it's estimated that about, I think, 180 to 100 million Americans uh, have it now, today, and that a billion people worldwide have it. And it's on the rise, right? It's even in the rise on uh, children. Hmm. And so um, we're sort of in the readout phase of that now. We'll be publishing a study on it, but you know, we've got some incredible results there in terms of reducing toxic liver enzymes, uh, reduction of uh, bad actor uh, fatty acids that are linked not only to liver diseases in the future, but also cardiovascular diseases. And so, you know, in that case, you're looking at uh, reversing a preconditioned state and potentially preventing um, some of these really big and, and in many cases, you know, not very well solved or addressed uh, health states right now. And, um, you know, we've also looked at on the health side of the equation, the relationship between basis and aging itself. So we have another product called Index, which sits in the bioinformatics side of the world and, and really the diagnostic side of the product portfolio. And so what Index does is it's looking um, at sort of what's called methylation patterns, which is um, uh, epigenetic signatures of gene expression. And it can actually tell you with a, with a spit test or even a pinprick of blood, how fast you're aging or how old you are biologically versus chronologically. And the way that that's defined just for the sake of understanding is all-cause mortality, all-cause risk for um, disease, morbidity, and mortality. And um, so you now have this quantification, right, do these analysis of very, very large data sets. We can actually begin to quantify aging at the individual level too. And so one of the things we've done is we've just looked at the relationship between NAD levels, as you had asked earlier, and rate of aging. And what we've found, and this is statistically significant, again, it's, it's sort of internal data at the moment, but we found a, a relationship between levels of NAD and your rate of aging. So the lower your levels of NAD are, the faster you age, and then vice versa is true. Um, so there's that, and then we've actually shown, this is the beginning of what's really exciting of where we are in the space, we've actually shown that 
um, customers, right, in surveying customers of ours, those who use it for one year or longer, you see a reduction in their biological age that persists for one and two years after when we're looking at the, the longest standing customers um, of the product. And what's interesting also about that is these are people who are already just starting um, healthier than the average. So these, and that's not surprising, right? If people are coming and they're interested in this field, they're educated, they're opting in to um, you know, a product focused on cellular aging, right? You'd think they're probably doing other things that are good for their health as well. And so you know, these people are starting off healthier than you know, 75, 80% of people at a minimum, and you're still seeing a reduction in their rate of aging. And again, statistically significant. And so, you know, we're entering into the space on the basis side of it where you're, you're, we're starting to learn the clinical benefits of it, but we're also being able to actually tie it directly to aging, which is really exciting in my opinion. So let's, let's clarify that last point a little bit, because I think it's super interesting. You're basically saying that you've got this product index, which tells you your biological age, not to be confused with your chronological age, which is, you know, the biological age is, is a much better um, representation of, like you said, like all cause mortality. And, um, you know, the number doesn't really matter. It's, it's what your, you know, body, what, what kind of shape your body's really in. And so, um, you mentioned that, you know, people are taking the test and then they're taking basis for a year or two, taking the test again, and they've actually, um, gone backwards. They've gotten younger in terms of their biological age. What, I mean, you mentioned that these people are, you know, they, they tend to be on the healthier side, which for the reasons you said, is not surprising, but, um, I'm curious, what's like your, you know, top, like most obvious sort of case study, like customer a in terms of like, okay, this person's a pretty healthy 60 year old, as opposed to, for example, like, do you have 30 year olds taking this thing and then they're 25 or is it more like 65 and then they're 60 or is it like 65 to 64? Uh, is it a meaningful reversal? I'm curious just like to get into the nitty gritty of what you're seeing in terms of the reversal, because that's something that I think a lot of people, um, you know, as recently as five years ago, just probably wouldn't have thought was possible. Yeah, well, I'll say a couple of things. It's a great question. The, the, the first answer, which unfortunately will undoubtedly be disappointing for um, a certain group, and if not a lot of people, is that the vast majority of people, and again, I don't have the exact percentages, but when I say vast majority, I mean, it's, it's well north of 50%, probably, you know, in the two thirds, if not higher camp, but um, again, I don't have the exact figures, are within, call it two to three years of their chronological age. So, you know, again, what you're going to find is that uh, a 35 year old, most of the time is going to be somewhere in the, call it 32, 33 to 37, 38 range. Mm -hmm. You're not going to deviate that much. Um, and the other thing is, as you get older, actually, the test becomes in many ways narrower. And the reason for that is, in the most literal sense, survivorship bias, right? Because as those people who have the, the worse sort of side of, of the aging coin continue, you're sort of left with people who are much more in line with what you would expect from an actuarial standpoint, right? So, you know, someone who's 75 chronologically is likely going to be very, very close to 75 biologically as well, right? Just based on that methodology. Now, there are outliers, but, you know, I think that's point one. Point one is, um, the, you know, the, the, the great majority of people are within that. The other thing there that will be disappointing is we have yet to see, and again, this, this makes a lot of sense, we have yet to see somebody who's going to be 20 years, for instance, you know, because you asked for the extremes, right? Sure. We, we haven't yet seen, and, and there are some tests that'll tell you this, but if you think about it, it's just the methodology would make no sense. Um, and certainly in, in our um, platform, we have never seen this, but you're not going to get someone who's 20 years older or younger um, than that. And that makes sense, right? We've never had a human outlier in, as we understand all of humanity who's lived to 150, right? We have a whole bunch of people who have made it to hundred. We have a very, very small number of people who've made it to 110 and then an even smaller number of people who've made it a little bit above that. Right. And so you would expect if somebody was this incredible outlier on this test, you would also see it, you know, that would be the people who are in the range that I was just talking about. But we've never also, as you know, had somebody who's aged to 200 or something of that sort. There's always been that upper limit. So that's, that's kind of piece one. And then piece two is we're only now entering into the realm. Now that that measurement tool is available, uh, we're only now entering into the realm where we're understanding what will impact it and how, right? I think ultimately that opens the door for things like personalization at the individual level. And I think really this is the key 
to personalization. It's one of the things we're obviously working on. But you know, if you were to say, well, can I can I take? There has been a study. I think it was very small, eight people looking at the combination of of hormones like growth hormone and testosterone, maybe DHEA, and showed a small reversal over the course of a year in older men, I believe it was. But you know, we're only now on the cusp of really understanding. Uh, the second part of your question, which is, what are those things? How you know? How are we actually going to be able to reverse it? Great, yeah. So, uh, and that's uh, you know a little bit disappointing coming coming from the uh, the company that I'm hopeful will make people live a little bit healthier and a little bit longer. But at the same time, it does make sense that uh, you know people tend to be relatively in line with their their chronological age, and hopefully, we'll continue to find things with your guys' help that uh, you know will enable people to you know, have those reversals and, uh, stay young a little bit longer and just work at the margin until it's a, uh, a more meaningful impact. Uh, I, I want to touch on your third product, which we haven't mentioned thus far. Um, I don't know if it was third in, in chronological order to use the aging term, but, uh, but basis, uh, we talked about index. We talked about, if you got a third product, which is focused on the brain, uh, would love just sort of the high level, uh, overview on that. And then I understand, um, if you're able to share that there's another product uh, coming very soon, and uh, maybe we can release this podcast after it's out so that you can share a bit about that and, and what that's all about. Absolutely. So uh, matter is a little bit easier, I think, to, to understand for a couple of reasons. One, it's about brain aging as opposed to aging in general. Uh, so a little bit more tangible in that regard. But also um, there was a lot of human work that was done um, when Elysium entered the picture. And um, we, we learned of this uh, work years ago uh, and uh, have been working with the University of Oxford where all of this research was uh, conducted over that period of time. And we, we ended up launching the product about a year ago, a little over, it was June of, of um, 2020, mid-pandemic, which was interesting for a lot of reasons uh, that we can talk about. But the short on, on matter is the following. So um, the researchers at Oxford had hypothesized that um, a particular amino acid, a bad acting amino acid called homocysteine, uh, exhibited high levels uh, in uh, patients with neurodegenerative diseases and with cardiovascular diseases. And as they studied this, they had the hypothesis that reducing it would have beneficial effects in those diseases potentially. Um, but as they start, you know, as they got deeper into the work, as these, again, things are apt to happen, they found that um, homocysteine was actually increasing in healthy people too. So suddenly it was this age-related change, similar to NAD decline that we talked about earlier. And so what they found is that homocysteine was going up in, uh, in even healthy people, everybody. And they said, well, maybe the opportunity is even bigger than we thought. Maybe the idea here is that homocysteine is somehow driving brain aging. And I didn't know this, Jake, at the time. It was, it's a pretty terrifying stat to learn, but um, your brain will atrophy. I mean, if you think about atrophy in general, it's, it's something we're familiar with, right? If you look at the musculature of, a, of, a, of an 80-year-old versus a 60-year-old, right, it's, it's pretty starkly different. A 60 to 40-year-old also different, but that 20-year that difference between the latter group and the former group is, is you know, geometric. Right. And so um, this is very similar. The brain loses about, I think, in all 20 percent or so um, of its mass as we age, which I mean, if you think about that, it's, it's, it's horrific. And um, what they were, were looking at is could the reduction of homocysteine arrest or slow again the, uh, the atrophying of the brain? And, and by the way, that atrophy comes with um, cognitive decline as well. And the slopes are almost identical. If you look at the slope of atrophy on average, and then the, the rate of cognitive decline, again, even in healthy people on average, they're identical. And so um, what they did was they looked at the metabolic regulatory pathways for this amino acid. They formulated a multi-small natural molecule approach um, and ratioed it based on the contributing weights of um, the inputs to that uh, regulatory pathway. And they administered it over the course of two years in people who were older individuals, again, in their 60s, 70s, beyond, and who had um, self-reported memory concerns, mild memory concerns, I think, uh, because they wanted to really you know, test this on, on people who were otherwise healthy, but also, I think, have an indication for whether it would work in these more severe states as well. And they looked with fMRI imaging, um, uh, very 
expensive at that time and gold standard at this group over the two-year period. And what they found, again, this was placebo-controlled, what they found was, was nothing short, in my opinion, of incredible, which was in the product group, uh, the treatment group, after two years, the rate of atrophy in the brain, specifically in the areas associated with memory and learning, so these are the, the areas you really want to pay attention to, they slowed the uh, rate of atrophy by 86% uh, in comparison to placebo. And so you look at these images, and um, they're on our, our webpage if people actually want to go and look at them. They're, they're, they're stark to look at. I mean, if, if you think about it, you basically at 86% almost fully arrested it, right? If you think about accrual, right, over time, uh, interest rates, for instance, if you're at 86%, you're doing a a whole heck of a lot to make sure that that's slowed. So um, obviously there was there was some cognitive benefit that was conveyed, although the, the study was not powered for that. So that's the next uh, foray for us is to actually look at the, um, the benefits potentially that would be associated with the slowing of the atrophy from a cognitive and a memory standpoint. Um, but there's an index component to this as well. So um, just like we looked at NAD levels and their relationship with the rate of aging, we also um, analyzed samples, tissue samples from this um, study and the participants from it. And we found that there is the opposite relationship that NAD has. In the case of homocysteine, as your levels of homocysteine go up, your rate of aging goes up, right? And that makes sense. We, we know it's a bad actor. We know it's doing bad things, right? It's, it's literally causing atrophy of the brain tissue. And so you'd expect that higher levels of it would, would have uh, negative effects and that's true. So in, in the case of NAD, as it's going down, you're seeing a bad effect. So you want to boost it. In the case of homocysteine that's going up, you're seeing biological age and rate of aging go up. And so um, we've actually furthered that. And we're now working today um, to develop a test that would measure using index, your rate of brain atrophy. Specifically, we're hoping to do it in those areas associated with learning and memory, because that would give us a whole slew of potential opportunities to um, one, look at in diseases, right? Can we actually diagnose some of these neurodegenerative conditions, right? We don't have good biomarkers today. We don't have any diagnostic tools, but in healthy people as well, understanding cognitive function, understanding the, the, the things that the product would have efficacy towards. So that's the second product, that's matter. And uh, was that a hint at the next product that you have upcoming or that's something separate? No, so the upcoming product is, it's a new um, intervention. It's, uh, its name is Format. And Format is in the space of immunosenescence. So there's a, there's a part of the aging field uh, that has come into its own uh, of the last kind of decade called uh, cellular senescence. And, and again, for the audience, the idea is that uh, at some point your cells, um, at any given moment, you probably have millions of cells that are doing it, reach the end of their functional lifespan. And we have systems, of course, in the body from the immune side of things that go and they recycle the components that can be recycled and then they eliminate the products that cannot be reused. And as we age, those processes fail. Um, and what happens is you end up with an accumulation of these end of life cells that should be repurposed or um, eliminated and they're not. Um, I always liken it to driving in Boca Raton. Jake, I don't know if you've been, but you, know, you have these really um, large old like Lincolns on the road and people driving very slowly, probably who shouldn't have their license, right? Hmm. Um, and you know, one is it gunks up the highway, right? It actually jams it up. But more than that, these cells are actually dangerous. They're called zombie cells because they can infect other otherwise healthy cells. And that causes inflammation and cellular failure and all of these other really bad things, sort of the way that one of these cars could cause damage to another vehicle on the road if it's not operated correctly. And so um, the idea behind senolytics or treating these senescent cells is, is sort of like cleaning a pipe in your house, right? There's this buildup and you want to flush them out. And um, that's exactly sort of what we've designed. We've designed a two actually step system uh, it's, it's pretty novel in terms of how these products work. We have um, one product, which is a daily product that's really looking at, um, um, it has a number of complexes in it, but there's two that I would highlight here. The first is what's called autophagy. You can think of that as the recycling portion of the, of the immune system, right? Going out and taking those um, cellular components that can be reused and allowing them, enabling them to be reused, supporting that process in uh, the, the aging uh, context, right? So not allowing it to decline or, or continuing its uh, maintenance. Uh, the other piece there is oxidative stress, right? Um, inflammation, we know, is a huge, huge issue when it comes to all kinds of uh, states of health, right? And I'm not talking about disease-related um, inflammation, right? 
that would be more acute. This is just over time that comes with aging. And, and again, it's the immune system's job to fight this, but as the immune system declines, it's unable to do that. So that's, that's a product that's taken daily. And then the senolytic piece of it, which I was just referring to, is um, an add-on that you do in high-dose fashion only for two days out of each month. So uh, it's not something you want to do every day. You don't want to pour Drano, for instance, down the pipes every day with a little bit, right? You want to wait until there's that buildup, and then you want to flush it out. And so many people are, are taking some of these types of products today, and they're doing so incorrectly. They're taking them on a daily basis in a low-dose format when uh, the data, at least the data that we're seeing and that we're generating internally shows that you should be doing it. Um, and so for, for us, the idea is really, it's a, it's a new way of approaching immune health. Um, it's, it's also a new way of approaching, I think, overall health, wellness, and aging itself. And we will be incorporating index over time into that, looking again at the impact of these different things on biological age and, and rate of aging. Yeah, that, 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 that sounds super exciting. Um, last question here. I know we're, we're coming up on time. Um, put yourself back in, in your old shoes. You're, you're a venture capitalist. Again, you're looking at the field of aging. Uh, what's most exciting to you? What do you see, uh, for the next, you know, five, 10 plus years? Uh, obviously you're, you're going to be all in on Elysium, but, uh, including and, and outside of that, um, what do you foresee for the space as a whole, which I think a lot of people, including myself, are just so excited to see unfold over the next you know decade and, and decades to come. I, I think for, at least in the context of Elysium, there's two things, right? The first is I think we'll begin to show, um, and this isn't unique to us, I think we'll see it from others as well, both in the health side of the equation, the consumer side and the disease and drug side is, you know, some really meaningful progress and improvement when we're talking about things like impacting aging itself, right? And, and I think that's that's just, we've been waiting for the, you know, since the dawn of time, right? <laughs> since we could think and write um, for, you know, things that actually can demonstratively, measurably impact aging itself. And that will obviously come with a lot of other health benefits. And so that's from the intervention side of it. One of the areas I'm most excited about, and I think you could probably hear it, is the diagnostic side, right, index. And I think, you know, technologies like epigenetics and, and things that are looking at spaces like that, taking the genetics field into the new uh, generation of technologies, I think it's just going to open up doors to insights that we've just never even thought possible before. And so, you know, things that literally were science fiction, we're now beginning to live. And, and for me, that's really, really exciting. I think beyond that, you know, obviously you can't downplay the potential enormity of CRISPR, right? I think, um, you know, even this past week, there was a a new paper published out of Feng Zhang's lab at the Broad around, you know, SEND, S-E-N-D, and it's a really interesting way that they might have solved one of the key challenges of getting, um, you know, CRISPR-edited um, um, changes to be adopted uh, system-wide in the body, which has been a huge challenge to date, and even for things like mRNA vaccines. And so, you know, that um, is one thing. And then I'd say the biggest promise a lot of this has, if you put all that together, is personalization. You know, we've heard about this, this for a long time. It's a buzzword. No one has solved it, right? I mean, if someone had solved it overnight, this would be a, a trillion dollar company, right? And we would have heard incredible things from people. And so I think, you know, all of these things being put together um, over the next five and 10 years, if not faster, I think, you know, we're going to be at the end of one level, really personalizing things and seeing meaningful improvement. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much, Eric, for taking the time and, and for doing what you're doing. I'm super excited to see uh, what the future holds for Elysium. Uh, I want to give you the opportunity to point people to, uh, you know, wherever they can go and, and follow progress and everything like that. And maybe it's just a website and uh, I will give a plug. You, you made a generous offer. Uh, people can go and uh, if they go and buy the annual or semi-annual subscription to basis format or matter uh, using the code Jake, they'll get 10% off. So that's at ElysiumHealth.com expires on November 4th. Uh, anywhere else you want to direct people to go uh, learn more about what you're doing and follow updates as they come? No, I think that's it. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks again. And I'm looking forward to seeing what's next. Jake, thank you very much.